Hi, my name is Caitlin and welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough, that in the gospel we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance this gospel message of Jesus Christ. Last week, we started off this new sermon series uh, called The Kingdom of Right Relationships, and we really started it off on, it's based on this premise, it's something that my father-in-law had said to me uh, a while back, um, but he said, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships, and it's so true, because when we look at the kingdom of God, if we're going to be in the kingdom of God, and, and we talked about this last week, but we have that opportunity right now, Right? Because we have access, unlimited access to the Holy Spirit, we have the opportunity to walk in the kingdom of God right now. And so it's this weird state right now where it's fully God's kingdom living inside of us, but it's not yet completed the way that it's going to be someday. Someday Jesus is going to come back and his kingdom is going to be the only kingdom and, and we will live in it perfectly, but we don't have to wait until then to start living in that kingdom now. Um, but to do that, what do we have to do? It's something that we hit on every week here. We've got to surrender to the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> you guys are going to get sick of me saying this, but I'm going to keep saying it. We cannot walk in God's kingdom man's way, right? But yet, that's exactly what Christians today try to do. We try to walk in God's kingdom. We try to fulfill God's law. We try to do these things man's way. And so we think, well, what does Jeremy think best, Right? The gospel house, well, Jeremy's our pastor, so what does he think best? What's the elder board think is best? That's not what we're about here. We are about what does the Holy Spirit say to do? And as the Holy Spirit, because that's what's cool, right? We, we talk about, in the church a lot, we talk about discipling, right? Everybody's got to be discipling, and everybody's got to be discipled, and all of this stuff, and we get this faulty idea of what discipling is, right? Well, the, you know, the smartest guy in the church, he disciples everybody else. False. False, false, false. Disciple is very simply doing life together. But here's the thing. As a spirit-filled believer, as a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who is discipling you? It's not Jeremy, right? It's not the gospel house. It's not the smartest person, the spiritual father in your life. That's not it. You can disciple with those people. That's good. But the Holy Spirit is discipling with you right now. Why would you want Jeremy to disciple you when you've got access to God himself, right? Right? But we've got to surrender to the Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit disciples with us, we go out and we do what he says, right? We tell others what the Holy Spirit's telling us. We do to others what the Holy Spirit is doing, right? We come alongside him and we do all of this stuff, but that's living in God's kingdom. And I cannot get there in Jeremy's strength. Part of the kingdom of God, though, is we've got to be in right relationship. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we talk about being in right relationship. So last week, we talked about what that right relationship looks like with God, right? Because that's foundational. If we don't get that one right, we will miss every other relationship. If you don't get your relationship with God right, you will miss every other relationship. So you've got to get that one right first. Now today, we move into the next category. Because what does Jesus give us as his two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's, that's the first one, right? The first, or the greatest and foremost commandment. That's what Jesus says, not Jeremy, right? And then the second one he says is like that. Now we talked last week, that doesn't mean that it's close in priority, right? It's still, love God's up here, everything else is down here. There's, there's a world of difference between the two, but he says the other is like it. You have to love others as yourself, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. So today, that's where we move. We move into loving your neighbor. The kingdom, if the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of right relationship, then you have to have right relationship with your neighbor, correct? Now, right relationship with your neighbor causes us to ask the question, who is my neighbor, right? 
and you would not be the first person to ask Jesus that question because somebody else asked Jesus that question, right? Jesus, who is my neighbor? And you Bible scholars, you know right where we're going with this, don't you? You're all ready for it. I'm not going there today. Ha, ha, ha. Left hook, right? You were all expecting the ringer over here, and I sneaked you. That's not where we're going today. Next week, we will, we'll talk about the Good Samaritan, about what it means to be a neighbor, who is your neighbor. But there's actually a relationship that gets snuck in between that we miss a lot. All right? So God is number one priority. We talked about this last week. There is actually a number two priority. It falls within neighbor, but, it, but it's this weird, like, other level, and Jesus talks about it. So let's read our scripture reading from today. It's from Matthew 12. It's a super short one, so you can just follow along in the screen. It says this, While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Do you see it? Do you see the relationship that comes before? This isn't going to be popular, y'all. Because this is where the church should go. And it's not popular with a lot of churches today. And I'll tell you why I think it's not popular with a lot of churches today. Because it's also not popular with the world today. Right? The world is all about what? Blind acceptance. Love is blind acceptance. It is tolerance. It is inclusion. It is, and you do so blindly. You don't ask questions. Because everything else is love with strings attached, right? And God's grace has no strings attached. Right? Right? Gospel House, we just got out of the James Sermon Series, right? I mean, come on, y'all. I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. God's Word isn't going to let you off the hook that easy. So we talked last week. God is number one priority. Anybody have any objections to that? Good. Then... Priority number two is marriage. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> false. Blasphemy. False doctrine. Not, number two is not marriage. Okay, so it's not marriage, so then it's my family. No. Okay, children? Uh-uh. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say is the next trump card in line? And it is... Those who do the will of his Father. Right? That's the church, y'all. And here's what's funny about this. This isn't new. It's not like Jesus came and like made this new thing, right? This is Old and New Testament. There is a priority placed on your relationship with your brothers and sisters in the faith. Right? It existed in the Old Testament too. Right? The way that Jews were supposed to handle or deal with relationships with other Jews. Now look, we got we to be clear here, all right? We'll talk about this next week when we talk about our relationship with the world. This does not mean that we are church relationships and the world forget you. Like, we don't talk to the world, right? This isn't, this isn't a call to monkdom, you know? Is that a word? I just made it a word. Where we all, you know, we all become monks and go away from the world and never come back, right? That's not what it means. It doesn't mean the only albums you can have in your house are Christian albums. The only books you can read are Christian books. Christian romance novels are way better than... That's not what it means, right? What it means is there is a priority, right? So because there's a priority placed in loving God, that doesn't mean we don't love other people, right? It's the same thing with this. Your hearts are very big. Did you know that? You're like the Grinch. Your heart grew three sizes that day, right? And when you invite God into the picture, your heart gets even bigger. He has given you more than enough capability to love everybody. But we've got to get the priorities right. And what does Jesus say? Jesus kind of lays the smack down here, right? He kind of smacks you upside the head and says, Hey, listen, y'all, you've been doing it this way for a long time, but I'm telling you, your priorities need to change. 
because he takes family, which, you know, even Old Testament speaking, that's a really high priority, right? Ten Commandments have family in it, right? Honor your father and mother, right? It's an important commitment. But Jesus says you have one greater than that. Because whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, y'all, the gospel trumps everything. Right? So look, what's even better is if your family all believes in the gospel. So if you've got family members who are unsaved, preach that gospel to them, right? Because then they get to come up a level, right? They get to jump the, to the will of the Father level. But this is the line that Jesus draws in the sand. At face value, when this is preached, it does not look tolerant, does it? As our world defines tolerance, right? It's not accepting or inclusive, not in the way that the world wants to be those things. But here's the deal, y'all. Everybody is invited to come to Jesus, right? All-inclusive. Anybody can sign up to come to Jesus. But when you come to Jesus, you must come on his terms. The world is upset because they want to come to Jesus on their terms. That's what they call inclusivity. God will have none of it. He never has. And I am sorry if that's unpopular. I'm sorry if that puts a label on me as a bigot, as you know, whatever else you want to call me. I'm not in charge of it. He is. And it's all in black and white in here. God lays that out. Jesus draws that line in the sand. And there is a priority that Jesus places in your right relationships with those who are walking out the Father's will. Now, we want to be careful here, okay? Because look, see that C, English teacher? There is a capital C in there. Now it's a heading, so it gets kind of funny because you capitalize things you don't normally capitalize. But that's a capital C church, okay? Not a lowercase c church, okay? Ladies and gentlemen, sober warning for you. You can come to church every Sunday, every Wednesday night, every prayer meeting, every rally, every worship night, everything and still have no interest in doing the will of the Father. Come on, y'all. Wake up call. Dang, I'm not getting any further away from James, am I? I'm just batting, beating you over the head. But legit, right? You all know Christians who do it. If you don't, you are the Christian who does it. <laughs> right? But for real... I am talking about your relationship with people in the capital C church. So that means, are there people in other churches, in Bowling Green, Ohio, in Perrysburg, Ohio, in Millbury, Ohio, and all, all around us, are there churches who people who attend those churches do the will of your Father who is in heaven? Absolutely. This does not mean that you have a priority on your relationships with gospel house people. False. Gospel House is a lowercase c church. We are part of the uppercase c church, right? And so we come together as that, and hopefully, y'all, I'm drilling this in your brains, the Holy Spirit is working in us, and we're all doing the will of the Father. So hopefully, we got 100% batting on that, right? 100% batting average, all of us doing the will of the Father. And so those relationships become important. But it's important to note, you can come to church and sit in a pew or sit in a seat, and that does not make you the church. The church. You are made the church by doing the will of the Father. And we've got to draw that line because we're going to talk about it, right? So these are the three things we've got to do to get right relationship within the church, with others in the church. We encourage one another. We sharpen one another. And then we'll find that we can really only do those things effectively as long as we're living in covenant with one another. That is the call of God, to live in covenant with one another. Y'all ready for this? Here we go. Here's your encouraging sermon, the Sunday before Valentine's Day. So start. We encourage one another. This is what everybody wants, right? This is what everybody wants. 
Let's be real. Nobody really struggles with this point, right? When you see encouragement up on that screen, you think, oh, all right, we at least get one point off where Pastor Jeremy's not going to yell at us. False. <laughs> this wouldn't be a gospel house sermon if I didn't make you feel terrible, right? Right. But the thing that we've got to ask, we love encouragement. But if we love encouragement that much, is that because we're doing encouragement man's way or God's way? Because I have found, now listen, this isn't a measuring stick. Like, well, if life is terrible and you absolutely hate your life, then you're probably doing the will of God because he never lets you be happy. That's not how I'm advocating we measure whether or not we're doing God's will. But I am saying when life is super easy and everything is coming up, sunshine and rainbows, Jesus Christ himself warns that that's probably not a good sign, right? In this life, you will have trouble, right? And so we've got to ask ourselves, when smooth sailing is a little too smooth too long, are we in the will of the Father? Or is the world happy with the route we're going? Because when we're in the direction of hell, the world is super thrilled about that, right? And life is good. But when we're on the straight and narrow, that's when the enemy's throwing everything at us, right? We're getting distracted, we're getting knocked down, we're getting kicked. So if we are, we love the encouragement, we love talking about encouragement, encourage, 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 we've got to ask, are we doing it man's way? Or are we doing it God's way? Uh, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 is probably the best single passage on encouragement. I could go through, I had trouble with this sermon because I was trying to figure out, this is the problem with topical sermons. Topical sermons are when you preach on a topic and you kind of pull from different areas of the Bible to support you know, what you're saying. And it's difficult because with encouragement, like I could pull from absolutely any part of the Bible and show you where God says to encourage one another, right? So to try to find one place so I'm not up here preaching for six hours, which is already a struggle for me, you know, it's difficult. So we look at, to Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. I say that to tell you there is more than just this passage on encouraging. So don't think this is the only passage on encouragement in the Bible. But it says this, <clears throat> excuse me. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do we encourage one another? Here's the thing, y'all. It cannot be just nice words. Church, if that is the extent of our encouragement to one another, we have missed it entirely. I think the faulty idea that we have in the church today is that I can encourage you with just nice words, right? We're going to keep ragging on it. I can buy you the Hobby Lobby signs, the Hallmark cards, right? And if I give you those once a week, you know, send you flowers, you know, all that stuff, you're encouraged. And then I get out my little Christian check sheet that I keep in the pages of my Bible, encourage. And then I go to Pizza Hut and don't tip my waitress. That's a sermon for another day, though. That cannot be where we draw the line of encouragement, y'all. Because that's not biblical encouragement. Now look, is it good to say nice words to people? Absolutely. Is that the extent of biblical encouragement? Absolutely not. There is so much more to it. And it goes with everything else in the Christian faith. We talked about this with reading scripture. We talked about this with praying. Well, how do those things, remember the prayer of a righteous man availeth much? Remember that? You can't stand on that on your own, right? I'm not righteous enough to pray that prayer. I'm not righteous enough to claim that promise because I'm not righteous, but who is? Jesus, right? So when I stand on that promise, I don't stand on it as Jeremy. I stand it as a on it as a child of God who Jesus bought with his own blood. But the same thing goes with encouragement. When I encourage, I don't encourage people as Jeremy. I have to encourage them in Christ. 
I have to encourage them through Christ. I have to encourage them with the goal of making them more like Christ, right? What's this passage from Hebrews tell us? We push each other to love, right? We push each other to, to, to do good deeds. You guys know, hearing this language, pushing's not easy, right? You sit on your couch and push. I mean, buttons on the remote control, I guess, right? Encouragement should be work. Why do we like Hobby Lobby signs and Hallmark cards and flowers? You know why I like it? Because if on Valentine's Day I forgot to do anything actually thoughtful for my wife, I can just run out to Kroger real quick and buy some flowers, and it's like, all right, did it. Reminder, gentlemen, Valentine's Day is Tuesday this week, so don't forget that. We already covered Jan and I don't, don't celebrate Valentine's Day. We celebrate the day after Valentine's Day because that's when all the flowers are on sale. And so I go out and buy her a bouquet of roses on Wednesday. Shrewd as serpents, y'all. Innocent as doves. That's how we do it. But y'all, encouragement is not idle. We've got to stop thinking that it is. This is why it is so popular to just do these things, buying gifts for people, writing a little note for people. Those aren't bad things, y'all. But the problem is, when that's all encouragement is, it's the easy way out, right? And what happens when you have a friend who continues to encourage you by taking the easy way out? Eventually, that encouragement becomes cheap, doesn't it? It doesn't mean as much. Hey, we know your life stinks right now. Here's a Hallmark card. Thanks, buddy. I'd rather you actually sit and listen to me, though. I'd rather you sit and not tell me how to fix myself, but just listen to my problems. Y'all, we cannot encourage one another if we refuse to invest. You guys ever heard the term relational equity? It is what it sounds like, right? Like any other equity that you build up. You have relational equity with everyone, all right? This is a, this is a, they do this in marriage a lot, right? You got to build up relational equity with your spouse. Okay, cool. You do, you do have to. I'm not saying you don't. I just, I think it's funny when they make up these stupid terms for common sense things. Spend time with your wife. Relational equity. But, but that's what encouragement needs to have. And it's what encouragement is missing in the church today. Cheap encouragement comes with the buildup of no relational inequ- or equity. I don't have to spend any time to write somebody a card. I mean, a little time, I guess, but not much, right? I don't have to spend any time to stop at Kroger. Five minutes, I got flowers and Valentine's Day is done. That's not building up any sort of relational equity. If we are going to encourage one another, we have to build up this equity with each other. But what does that require? Your number one most precious commodity. Huh. We like to pretend it's money, but it's not. It's time, 100%. And the number one reason that you, I'm talking to all of you now, (laughs) and the reason I can't so confidently is because it starts here, because I struggle with it too, y'all. The number one reason that you don't encourage people biblically is because you refuse to spend the time it takes to do so. What's Hebrews tell us? How do we encourage one another? We gather together. We pray together. We confess our sins together. You didn't expect that to be in the encouragement section, did you? (laughs) It's because nobody views confessing sins as encouragement, right? Why would that encourage me? Ah, you've never done it before, have you? Ladies and gentlemen, if you aren't confessing your sins with a brother or sister in Christ, you are missing out. You know that feeling when like you're done with an exam and the weight of the exam is lifted off of your shoulders? That's what confession is like. Every time you get that sin off your chest, the deeper it's been hidden, the more relief you have. 
It is like breathing for the first time. Y'all, I said it in the James series. I will say it again. Find someone with whom you can confess your sins with. Somebody that you trust, somebody that you can go to. I'm not suggesting we do this as a church. That's probably not a great idea. Get up here on Sunday mornings and everyone confess your sins. Nobody's going to want that. But find a trusted brother or sister that you can confess your sins with because it is the most encouraging thing you will ever do in your life. I promise you that. God's word promises you that. Super important. We confess our sins together. We worship together. What is all of this, y'all? We encourage one another by doing life together. And as we do life together, if you're following the Holy Spirit, if you're listening to the Holy Spirit, the way you live your life should be an encouragement to everyone that you're bringing along with you, right? That's biblical encouragement. Yes, it absolutely takes time. It absolutely takes resources and investment but it is not some form of shallow encouragement. What do you know that the Bible gives you that's shallow, right? Bible doesn't do shallow. Have you noticed that? God doesn't give shallow advice. He wants deep and meaningful relationships, which means maybe you've got to scale back a little bit, right? Maybe you've got to shrink the circle. That's one of the things I love about our Gospel House family, right? We're here. We're together. We see each other. I'm hoping we're doing life outside of these walls together, right? But that's what it's got to be to be encouragement. That shallow form of encouragement where we're just sending gifts and sending flowers, that's that noisy love we talked about last week, right? It's shallow. It's a bubbling brook. It makes a lot of noise. It's got a lot of flash. It looks good. But there's no depth to it. And look, y'all, when it all hits the fan and you are up against the wall, and life is hard, who do you turn to? You turn to shallow friends who send you greeting cards, or do you turn to deep friends who you know are going to be there with you? Come on, y'all. You know who you turn to, right? So stop not being that friend to everyone else. Preaching in the choir here, right? Invest. Make those investments. We have got to have skin in the game for encouragement to mean anything. Because ultimately, if encouragement is going to be encouragement, speaking from a biblical perspective, it has to be paired with number two. And this is the one we don't like. Sharpening, right? Proverbs, iron sharpens iron. And every single male's men's Bible study you go to, that's their phrase, right? They put it on their t-shirts and it's on their signs. Iron sharpens iron. Yeah, right? You guys know my beef with this. Some of you have talked about this a lot. Guys, you don't sharpen iron with pillows though, right? They don't pull out a nice silky soft pillow and start rubbing it against a piece of metal and eventually it gets sharp. Have you guys ever watched like how swords are made, Right? I guess maybe I'm a big nerd for knowing this, but like they have YouTube videos. You can go look it up. There's people who still make these big medieval swords. I don't know what for, but, but it's violent, right? When you're forming metal, it's metal on metal, and it, bam, hits, and there's heat involved and pressure and all of this uncomfortable stuff, right? Talking about smacking me with metal and heating me up and... <laughs> yeah, right. But that's the process. Yet we have a ch current church culture in America where we run around trying to sharpen each other with encouraging words. Right? Here's another Hallmark card. Iron sharpens iron. You're not sharpening anything, man. Right? We're getting more dull because we've got sin in our lives that continues to go unconfronted. We don't want criticism today, do we? Come on, raise your hand. Who likes to be corrected? Right? Nobody likes it. And so instead of doing hard things, we just don't do it. 
you know, my kids were listening to, they, they listened to Kids Bop Kids, these little CDs where, you know, kids sing songs or whatever. But they were listening to this, this song, it's, it must, it's like a pop song or whatever on the radio, but the, the name of the song is Cheerleader. Has anybody heard that song? You guys know what it is? But like the, the song, the hook of the song is, Ooh, I found myself a cheerleader. So da, 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 always see her or something. I don't know what it is. But, but you know, I was, listen, I was listening to this song. Don't judge me because I let my kids listen to secular music, okay? But I was, I was listening to this song and listening to the words, and I thought, man, alive, we can learn so much from culture if we actually listen, you know? We should do a whole sermon series on secular songs. Just kidding. Nobody would come. But if you listen, what's culture saying? I, I don't want a girlfriend who's going to correct me. And divorce rates tell us that, right? I don't, I, don't wanna, I don't want a husband or a wife who's gonna correct me on things, who's gonna tell me like the things that I need to change to be better. I want a cheerleader. That's, that's what I want, right? Somebody's gonna be like, rah, rah, Jeremy. Oh, Jeremy, your sermons are the best. Oh, Jeremy, we don't care that you just preached for an hour and 20 minutes yesterday. You need to cut that a little shorter. Oh, Jeremy, like, oh, your breakdown of that Bible passage was absolutely awful, but it was so good. It was so good. Don't get me wrong. It was so good. Because we don't want critics. We want fans. We want cheerleaders. We want likes and follows and subscribes. Right? But y'all, is that what Jesus is telling us? I think the best sharpening passage we have in the Bible, Jesus gives us in Matthew 18. Ooh boy, those of you who know that one, just put the gloves on because here it comes. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. What's Jesus say, y'all? If your brother sins, go and encourage him that he can do a better job next time. Does he say that? Nope. What's he say? If your brother sins, go and tell him five things he does really well. Come on, y'all. If your brother sins, go buy him a Hobby Lobby sign. That's my last rag on Hobby Lobby. I won't do it anymore. <laughs> I told you last week, I don't have anything against Hobby Lobby. I have against the people who put Hobby Lobby signs up in their house without knowing what they mean. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? He says to directly confront the sin you see in your brother or sister. He does not say to, di to directly confront the sin you see in the world, does he? You know, that this, this word here, brother, right there, that's speaking very specifically. The Greek word used there is a very specific Greek word which means someone else, and it's unisex, it's not, it's not just men here, but, but it, it means those in the same belief system or cultural group or whatever it is. So who's Jesus talking to here? He's talking to the church. Remember that, that next priority? Christians, we have gotten really good at judging the world, right? Right? We take to social media and we tell the world all the things that they're doing wrong. So, you know, not, not one time in Scripture are we told to judge the world. Not one time in Scripture. The only person the Bible gives you permission to judge are those who are inside the faith already. That's the difference between our relationship between the world and brothers and sisters in Christ, right? It's the biggest difference. And, and it, it makes sense. We, we just goes right over our head, and I think it's because the American church, the church has been in so much, such a position of prominence and power in the church that we've forgotten how to talk to the world when we're not in power anymore. And y'all, Christian, if you're not paying attention, you're not in power anymore. 
The world is skeptical of you right now. As soon as you say you're a Christian, they don't believe a word you say. But the problem is we come to the world and we're like, well, the Bible says, da-da-da-da-da. Well, the Bible says that you should be doing this, 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 this. And the world says, why should I give a rip about your Bible? I don't care. Look at Paul in the book of Acts. He's in a super similar position as us. He's out there ministering to people who have no idea what this word says. And what's he do? Well, everybody, in Galatians 5.9 it says, no, he doesn't. He comes to them and he gives them logical arguments for God based on science and reason and their belief sets, right? We approach the world the wrong way. And the church in America, y'all, we have gotten so used to telling the world what they're doing wrong based on this book that they don't believe in. And we wonder why our testimony is inefficient. And we wonder why we're not making any progress. But if you just showed up and lived the way that this book says, you'd start convincing some people. That's next week, though. But listen, y'all, we have got to get this right. This process of sharpening. We have got to be able to confront the sin that we see in one another and help turn each other back. So one of the blessings that Jesus gives us in the Beatitudes, right? What's he say? Blessed are the peacekeepers. False. He doesn't, right? Because biblically speaking, it is not good enough to keep the peace. That's not what we're told. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. In these church walls, y'all, we make peace. You know what making peace requires? A little conflict. We don't like that, right? Is there anybody here who likes conflict? It takes a special somebody to like conflict. There are people out there. There are people out there who really don't mind, and you probably know them because they tell you to their face that they don't mind conflict, right? Here's the thing, y'all. We don't like direct conflict. We have no problem with indirect conflict, do we? We know that because this is probably the most often broken command that Jesus gives us. Because instead of coming straight to a brother or sister and telling them the sin you see in their lives, you come to the pastor of the church, right? Pastor Jeremy, I saw so-and-so out at the bar and he was drinking beer. Can you please go have a word with him? I can't. Because you saw it and Jesus Christ tells you that you need to go tell him. Right? Well, okay, I don't really want to do that, but I'll just, we'll just pray about it. I'm just going to get my prayer group together. I'm going to go to my life group. Y'all, if I find out this is happening in life groups, I will bust some heads. Stop, right? Because that's, that's the Christian way to mask it. Oh, it's, it's not, I'm not gossiping. It's just a prayer request, right? Stop, y'all. If you haven't gone straight to that person and told them the sin that you see, you have absolutely no right talking to anyone else about it. You go to the person first. If they don't receive it, you go to one or two other people. And you don't go to them with the mission of just talking about it. You go to them with the mission of taking them with you because they have seen that attitude or that sin in that person's life as well. Here's the thing, y'all. If you go to those two people and you say, guys, I've noticed Pastor Jeremy, he's just being a real jerk. And so let's, let's come with me and we're going to go talk to Pastor Jeremy and tell him he's a jerk. And the two people say, well, we actually haven't noticed that. Then what do you do? Then I go to the church. <laughs> no, right? But that's what we do, isn't it? Oh, well, these people won't listen to me, so I'll go find two other people. Oh, well, those two people won't listen to me, so I'll go find two other. I'm just going to go to the whole church, stand up in the middle of the business meeting. Pastor Jeremy, you're a jerk. Thanks. You're right. I am. That's not how we do it. We go to two other people. If we are in agreement, if we're not in agreement, what happens? Drop it. <laughs> You're wrong, right? So we take those two other people and go to the person. If they won't hear that, then we go to the church, right? And if they still won't 
listen to the entire church when the entire church says, listen, man, you've got to stop this. This is sin in your life, and you've got to get rid of it. If they still don't listen, what are you supposed to do? Kick them out and hate them forever. <laughs> no. Right? Kick them out, yes. That's not popular today, is it? That's not, that's not accepting, Jeremy. What's, what's Jesus say, y'all? There's another really convincing passage, 1 Corinthians 5. might be the least taught-on passage in the Bible. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody teach on that passage. Maybe I'll teach on it next week. Why not, right? Go all the way, controversy. But there's actually somebody in the church who is having a romantic fling with his stepmother. <laughs> right? That's uncomfortable. That's probably why it doesn't get preached on much. But the church just lets it happen. This guy's walking in here. Hey, guys, look, stepmom on my arm. We got hitched the other day. And the church is like, oh, okay. Can you believe this? Can you believe it? James is over there with the Can you? Well, add that to the prayer list. It, it'll, go, it'll go out in the emails. And what's Paul say? He says, Stop. We've confronted the sin. The entire church has confronted the sin. And so now it's time, Paul says, to hand him over to Satan. <laughs> Yikes. That's heavy, isn't it? But that's the command. If you've confronted the sin and this person says, I want to do the will of God, I want to do the will of God, I want to do the will of God, and you say, that's not the will of God, man. Cut them loose. That doesn't mean they're not invited to sit in here on Sunday mornings, right? It does mean that you, th that relational priority that we talked about, right? Now what Jesus says here, right? They're to be a, to, as a Gentile and a tax collector. Nowhere in scripture are we commanded to hate anyone right? So when you turn them loose, that does not mean you hate them. And in fact, when they come back and say, hey, I, I goofed, I'm willing to change, you don't stiff arm them, right? You don't say, nope, sorry, you had your chance. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Because you completely missed the gospel if you do that. A hundred times you bring them back. Seventy-seven times, seven times, right? Gosh, I keep getting ahead of myself. But listen, y'all, why is it so important? Why is this so important that we get this right? And Jesus continues after this in the same teaching. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And we use this passage for all sorts of goofy stuff, don't we? And forget what came immediately before this passage. What's Jesus teaching here? There can be no disunity in the body of Christ. Right? Isn't that what the first part of that Matthew 18 passage is all about? Be at peace with your brother. Make sure that there's no sin in between you and your brother and God, right? Go out of your way to confront your brother and make sure he's doing the will of God. Because we take this passage and we pull it out, out of its context, and we say, well, if, if Miss Janet and I over here, if her and I agree that, that this person should be healed, then God's got to do it. Because two, two are gathered, right? And he's got to do what I say now. <laughs> you stand face to face with the Lord and tell him that. I'm getting as far away from you as I can when that lightning bolt comes. Right? Because guys, there's, there's this goofy thing that happens where we forget that all of these promises in Scripture about claiming God's word and claiming God's promises, that for some reason that can happen Jeremy's way. Right? I can gather two or three people and we can agree the Browns are going to the Super Bowl next year. They missed their shot this year, but next year, or actually maybe a real miracle, all the other teams have to forfeit and they make it this year, right? Yeah, that's what we'll do. Tim, you, can we agree on that? All right, me and Tim are good. 
God's got to do it now. Not Jeremy's way. Not Jeremy's way, right? All of this stuff is predicated on right relationship. We've got to get the relationship right. Because I can gather two or three people together and not a thing's going to happen for the kingdom of God unless those people are interested in doing the will of the Father. Right? That has to be what holds it together. We cannot run after God if we're complaining behind somebody's back about the sin we see in their lives. We cannot run together in unity. And God's not going to do anything powerful if we're out of unity, right? So we've got to get in unity. Can't even encourage each other properly if we're not in unity, right? So we've got to get it together. And we do that by living in covenant. We have to live in covenant with one another. And you know, people talk about covenant a lot when it comes to marriage, right? Marriage is the last true covenant left, right? Y'all, if you are a Christian, you have been called to live in covenant with people way outside of your marriage. Covenant is not something that a husband and wife engage in and no one else. As a Christian, you are called to live in covenant with everyone in the church. Every brother or sister in Christ, you are called to covenant with one another. Why? Because that's how God loves you. And what does covenant say? We talked about, if, if you haven't heard it, go back to our Christmas sermon series, but we talked about that Abrahamic covenant that God makes with Abraham, where God passes between the pieces of the animals and, and everything. And, and God, in doing so, says, Abraham, this deal that I'm making with you and all of your descendants, I am covering both ends of this deal. That's what covenant is. Covenant says, when, when I married Jana, I'm saying to Jana, Jana, I will fulfill both ends of this deal. You know, you get to the part in the vows, in sickness and in health, right? Nobody thinks about what these vows actually mean. You just say them, and you don't actually think what you're saying. But I'm saying, Jana, if you are laid up with sickness, and you are in bed, and you cannot serve me, there's not an ounce of your power. You can't do the dishes anymore. You can't cook dinners anymore. We can't make love anymore. We can't, whoops, did he say that? We do that, guys. We can't do nothing. I get nothing out of this relationship. I still choose you. I still love you because we are in covenant with one another. In fact, let's, let's illustrate, let's, let's use marriage. Guys, when we look at like encouragement versus sharpening, right? Not that the two are pitted against each other, but that's what the world does today, right? We want the flashy stuff. We want the easy stuff, right? When I look at my marriage with Jana, you guys, can I tell you why I love my wife so much? She's not here, so I'm not sucking up. I don't love my wife because she's the most beautiful girl in the world. Because, oh my gosh, she's like a supermodel. Like, oh, oh, unbelievable, right? That's flashy love. I don't love my wife because we have this, you know, whirlwind romance and we, oh, she buys me these little things and we sweep each other. Y'all, we've got kids. Jan and I are more like roommates right now than husband and wife. It's like in passing, we're like, oh, hey, see ya, off the basketball. She's like, oh, yep, hey, see ya, ballet class, right? We send letters to each other like through, through like the U.S. Postal Service because that's the only way to effectively communicate. But y'all, I love my wife. I, will I, I would never, ever, ever cheat on my wife. Because there is not another woman who could ever come into my life who has given me four beautiful children. Not another one. There, has not, there could not be another woman who could come into my life and weather the storms. I mean, the absolute garbage that Jana and I have walked through. And she has held my hand through every single one of those storms and has not complained once. Over and over again, I think, man, her life would have been so much easier if she would have married somebody that isn't me, <laughs> right? Because she deals with my crap day in and day out. 
guys, can I encourage you, if, the, if you've even thought down that path of, of cheating on a spouse or, or whatever, y'all, she is just as screwed up as the woman you're currently with. Right? You just haven't seen it yet. Everybody's got dirty laundry. Right? But you're talking about bubbling brooks versus deep river. Jana and I have carved out a deep river, and you don't carve out a deep river by living an easy life, by everything always going your way. Oh, we're so in love. It's like a Disney movie, happily ever afters. It's been hell, guys. We have walked through hell and back, and she has not once batted her eye and chosen someone else. She has never once let go of my hand. You want to talk about what covenantal love looks like. And y'all, the only reason Jana and I can do it, the only reason we can do it is because a long time ago we heard a Tim Keller sermon, right, on Abraham and the torch about what God's covenant meant. And both of us said that day, we're doing this. This is what our covenant is going to look like. You cannot do it on your own. Jesus actually ends this passage on Matthew 18. I guess it's not, he doesn't end it. It continues on after this, but I just included an excerpt. But Peter, Peter, love Peter, right? Peter interrupts Jesus as he's teaching this and says this. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, right? Peter's, Peter's always looking for these gold stars. So Peter's shooting for the moon here. It's okay, Jesus, guess what? I'll forgive my brother seven times if he sins against me. And Jesus says, oh, Peter. Peter, Peter, Peter. Not seven times. Seven, 70 times seven I'm not even going to try to do the math on that, y'all. You guys, math people can do it. I taught English. Look, y'all, we've got a world right now that teaches you can, you can forgive someone, but you don't have to let them back in your life, right? You cut, you cut the toxic people out of your life. You get rid of those toxic people. It's bad for you. You don't need that in your life, right? Right? Self-help gospel, y'all. It's super popular, and if we aren't paying attention, we can walk right into that. But what does Jesus say? What does the true gospel say? The true gospel teaches not self-care, selfless care. You know what it means to be selfless? There is no thought of you. You don't think of yourself at all, right? You care. I've had lots of people push back on me on this, right? You get that question a lot. Well, pastor, so what should I do if I'm in an abusive relationship with my husband? Like if somebody gets married and they're in an abusive relationship with their husband, they should leave, right? The Bible says to leave. It, it actually doesn't. What? It, it doesn't. And not just with a spouse, but with anybody, right? Well, well, okay, what scripture do you have to back that up? Well, all the way back in Genesis, if you want to start, Abraham and Sarah, right? Sarah starts treating her servant Hagar really, really poorly after Hagar has a son. And starts, it's, the Bible tells us, starts abusing her. And Hagar runs away. And God says, you're right, Hagar, get out of that situation. That's toxic for you. Mm, that's the sticky thing he doesn't. He says, go back and submit to her. So what do you do if you're in an abusive relationship? Pray. Now listen, I will say this. It is not loving to allow a spouse or anyone else to continue to abuse you. That's not the loving thing to do. So what does Matthew 18 say? to confront that person with their sin, right? If that means getting authorities involved, if you are in a situation like that, then authorities need to get involved. Okay, I'm not saying that you just sit there and take it like a doormat, but I'm also saying the Bible doesn't say, run, get out. 
says, ask God what to do, and he will tell you what to do. It's not popular, y'all, right? It's one of those A-bombs that you drop and nobody comes to church next week. (laughs) Well, I'll be here. Me and the worship team, you already confirmed on Planning Center, so you you can't skip out. Sorry, even if you don't like it. But here's the thing, y'all. We treat the gospel like it's this self-help idea, and it's not, right? You all have heard the self-help, right? Cut the toxic people out of your life, right? Right? Pastor, how can you sit here and say that Jesus will want me to do that? Y'all, I am the toxic person that Jesus kept around. You realize who you're complaining to? We don't, we don't keep toxic people. That might hurt you. Jesus Christ hung on a cross because of toxic people. And he never ran from them. Ever. And he still doesn't. Seven times 77, y'all. And I don't think that once you get to, what, what is that? What's seven times 77? Anybody? Math somebody? 490, okay? I don't think that means that once you get to error 491 that Jesus is like, well, he's done. 491 right there. I think he's, you know, he's, he's doing this to say, guys, there is no end. But what's Jesus say? Jeremy Allen Metzger, there is no end to how many times I have forgiven you for screwing up. Therefore, there is no end to how many times you are to forgive people for screwing up. And that does not mean forgive, but keep it a distance. That's not covenantal, y'all. That is not covenantal. It means I forgive you. You say you're sorry, and I welcome you back in. Let's walk together. Let's do this together. That's hard, isn't it? That's really hard. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I know any of your stories. If you struggle with it, go straight to Jesus with it because he's the only one who's going to be able to explain it. He's the only one who's going to be able to get you to wrestle with this because ultimately, Jesus is the only one who can help you understand what covenant truly means. And we see this in Peter, right? Because Peter asks this question about this radical forgiveness. He gets this answer of radical forgiveness. And then Peter's put in a situation where he needs radical forgiveness, right? We see it at the end of the book, or the Gospel of John. In this last chapter of John, John 21, this is right after, you know, Jesus has been resurrected and everything, but the disciples still have just had limited interactions with him. They haven't really experienced him yet. But Peter is fresh off his three denials of Jesus. You guys all remember that? He denies Jesus three times, and and we're led to believe that it happens in a way, because in one of the Gospels, I can't remember which one, but after it happens, Jesus actually makes eye contact with Peter. So, so, like, wrap your minds around this, right? There's this Savior who is now resurrected, and the last thing he saw you do in this earthly life was deny him three times. Can you imagine? Right? So we get to this scene in John, and John and all his buddies are out fishing, and somebody shows up on the shore and says, hey, cast your nets over on the other side of the boat. They've been out there all night and haven't caught a thing, and they're like, well, why not? So they do it, and they nets start busting, right? They can't even haul it in. And everybody in the boat's thinking, wait a minute, we've seen somebody do this before. Remember when Jesus did? And John says to Peter, that's Jesus. And what's Peter do? He says, well, let's get the boat to shore. Absolutely not. Peter puts on his clothes and jumps in the water. Who does that, right? Because it tells us the boat was only about 100 yards away from the land. It would have taken no time for them to row over there. Peter couldn't wait 100 yards. If that was Jesus, he had to get to him. And you have to imagine it was just to weep at his feet and beg for forgiveness, right? They get over to the shore, and the disciples bring this, this net, and it's, it's a large net, and I think, it, the, I can't remember exactly, but I think it says they had like 153 f- large fish in the net. I mean, I, I'm not a fisherman, Kurt. It's a lot of fish. Probably weighed a pretty good amount, right? 
Jesus asks for somebody to bring the fish over to him, and Peter goes and grabs the entire net and drags it over to Jesus. This is a man who is willing to do anything to earn back Jesus' good graces, right? And this is what Jesus does. It says, When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, there's an interesting thing that we miss here in the English translation. You guys, some of you heard me teach this before. But that love that Jesus says, he uses the Greek word agape, which is very similar to a covenantal love. But when Peter responds, Peter uses the Greek word phileo, which is more of like a brotherly love, right? Now, we've got to kind of draw a distinction here because most likely they weren't speaking in Greek. Um, They were probably speaking in either Aramaic or Hebrew, um, most likely Aramaic. But, But there's something that the Holy Spirit wants to catch our eye on. There was some exchange in here where Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me with this kind of love? And Peter was saying, Jesus, I'm not there, but, but I love you with this love. I have this to give you, Jesus. You're, you're asking for this, but I can give you this. And Jesus says, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Again, agape, love. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Again, phileo love. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And it's in this third time, Jesus changes the word that he uses. And he says, Peter, do you phileo love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. I love how much I hate this story. (laughs) It makes you want to weep when you understand what's going on because we have all been there, right? When Jesus says, Jeremy, do you love me? And I say, Jesus, I've got nothing left, man. I'm so broken and busted and screwed up. Why would you even want this? But look, I'll give you this. You want broken, you got it. And Jesus says, I will take it. But something really interesting happens after this. Jesus is asking Peter for this covenantal love, and Peter says, Jesus, I cannot give you that. I don't understand this love. But later we're told that Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. And then ten days later, he releases the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples, of whom Peter is one. Peter is baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and walks in the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. After that, we see Peter do some really incredible things. But I think the most incredible thing that we see happen in Peter actually comes in the first letter that we see of Peter that he writes. 1 Peter starts right away in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 say this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory." Guess what kind of love Peter uses? It's not phileo. He uses that Greek word agape. Do you see it? Y'all, you cannot love covenantally if you try to do it in your own strength. Peter told Jesus to his face, I can't love you like this, God. And God said, you're right, you can't. Gospel House, can I tell you something? As long as you come to God and you tell him, all right, God, yeah, I can love you like that. 
That's how Peter used to be, right? Before the denials. Always, Peter was like, yeah, God, I got this. I can do it. Never. He always fell flat on his face. But here in John 21, we see Peter finally say what Jesus had been waiting for him to say. This was what Jesus saw in him from the very beginning. The reason why Jesus said, you are the rock on whom I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. What was it? Because Peter was so bold and zealous and no, it's because Jesus knew that this was coming, that there was coming a day when Peter would come to him and say, Jesus, I can't do this. And Jesus said, finally, Peter, you get it. The day that you stop trying in your own strength is the day that you can finally love God, y'all. And the day that you finally can love God covenantally, guess what happens? That's finally the day that you learn to love others covenantally. This is a broken record. You cannot live in God's kingdom man's way. You cannot love God's way by trying to do it man's way. It will never add up. And you will never be able to love others covenantally if you're trying to do it in your strength. The only way to love God covenantally is to love God God's way. The only way to love others God's way is to love God's way. And God's way are so much higher than ours. You need the actual living God inside of you, directing every step to make that happen. Surrender completely to Him. To the living God who is inside of you. And learn to love with that agape love. With that covenantal love. Because y'all, it is only when you are in covenant. When you're in that unbreakable bond of a covenantal relationship. That's the only way you will ever feel safe enough to truly, biblically encourage one another and to sharpen one another. Come on, y'all, right? You can't sharpen one another if you're constantly afraid the other person's going to give up on you, right? If I come to Kurt and tell him all of his sins, hey, Kurt, I saw you doing this. You really got to stop. If he doesn't know I'm in covenant with him, then he just thinks I'm ragging on him. Well, forget this. I'm not coming back to that church. But if he knows I'm telling him this because I want him to look more like Jesus, I'm telling him this because I truly have his best interest in mind. Then he can trust me enough to change. And that's the kind of stuff that the body of Christ needs, right? Not this shallow encouragement. Not this noisy, bubbling brook kind of love, but these deep, deep rivers. You can't do this, y'all. Did you know that? But Jesus did it perfectly. And he will through the Holy Spirit in you as you surrender to him. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you are pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learn to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button, leave us a rating, and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house backslash connect. Fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you. And remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.